You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Amy, released March 20th, 1981. It was written by Noreen Stone, directed by Vincent McAvity, and released by Buena Vista Distribution, a.k.a. Disney. The working title was Amy on the Lips, which might have helped the box office, but (laughs) (laughs) I agree is not a good title. Though scenes from the film were later re-edited into a PSA by that title. It was originally filmed as a television movie, which explains the aspect ratio, but upon seeing the film, Disney decided that it was powerful enough to warrant a theatrical release. They were wrong. (laughs) I disagree. I think it's totally a theater movie. Yeah. All the students in the film, except for Brian Frischman, who played the Mervyn character, were students from the California School for the Deaf in Riverside, California. Its original release was closed captioned for the hearing impaired, which had never been the case for an American-wide release in the English language. We start in what looks like a mansion, or some very fancy household, and we see Amy, as played by Jenny Agater, place a letter and an engagement ring on a small table before walking out the door. I can never get used to anybody calling her Agater, because I've only ever heard English people pronounce her name. How do they pronounce it? Agata. Oh, they just say Agatha. Yeah, and so I always, so I never had looked up her name before, like, and realized that it was spelled E-R. I thought it had an A at the end, so I always thought it was just Jenny Agatha. I mean, she must descend from people who were gutters, right? (laughs) That's how you get your last name. (laughs) That that family used to be gutters. There's John. He's a gutter. Maybe they gutted things. (laughs) (laughs) She comes from a long line of murderers. (laughs) I don't know. An original song plays, it's called So Many Ways, and it's performed by Julie Budd, with music and lyrics from Robert F. Brunner and Bruce Belland. Uh, She gets into a carriage and rides out of town. She arrives later at the Parker School for the Deaf and Blind, where she is led to a room to stay in. She begins unpacking her bags and discreetly hides a framed photograph face down in a desk drawer. It seems like she'll be teaching here. Specifically, she intends to teach deaf children to speak. She's starting with six students. Superintendent Ferguson walks Amy around the grounds of the school. Apparently, the blind students and the deaf students do not play together. We see a group of deaf kids playing pranks on a line of blind children. The deaf bully taps a blind child on the shoulder and then pushes him over his bent-over friend to knock him to the ground. Another deaf student, Henry Watkins, sees this happening and rushes over to defend the blind kids by punching the two deaf kids in the face. (laughs) Yeah, we should know that there's... Sorry, it's not funny. <laughs> it's played as a comedic moment, apparently. Yeah. I didn't get that. Well, I, I, I just think it's odd that there's an evil deaf kid in this movie. <laughs> well, it's harder to be evil as a blind kid, I think. You can't pick on people's looks or sneak up on them. On the way to helping, though, Henry walks between two kids passing a ball back and forth, and he gets hit in the face by it, but it doesn't look on purpose. Like, he gets up from a swing and starts to walk to help the kid, and a ball just smacks him in the face as he's walking. (laughs) They even put a sound effect in for the ball hitting him in the face, and I don't think it was supposed to happen. Ferguson speaks to Henry in sign language for a moment, and Amy admits that she doesn't follow the conversation. 
Ferguson tells Amy that he was explaining to Henry who she is and what she'll be doing here. We cut to a wood shop where Ferguson introduces Amy to Owen Corner. Owen is apparently in charge of giving everyone their name signs. The name signs are basically a gesture to indicate specific people and they usually involve a letter in sign language touched to a part of the body to differentiate between different people with the same letter. Henry's is H on the eyes because he can see and Ferguson's is F on the forehead because his name is Ferguson and he's the superintendent which is as high as you can go in the faculty hierarchy. Owen declares Amy to be A on the lips because she's the speech teacher. Henry compliments her pretty face and smiles. I guess at this point in the movie, I'm bothered by the fact that they hired somebody to teach the the deaf kids who doesn't know sign language. Yeah, yeah. it seems like um, they must not have known that when she came to the school. Well, but there probably weren't as many people vying for this position. That's true. And you take so, what you can get if yeah. it's someone who says they can teach people to speak. Over a meal, Amy speaks with two of her fellow instructors, Helen Gibbs, who didn't realize deaf people could ever learn to speak, and Malvina, a grumpy lady, who seems certain that Amy's efforts are a waste of time and money. Malvina is not what they call an oralist. That's what you call these people who think that you can teach the deaf to speak. And she thinks that they should be taught to sign only because that's what's important is the ability to communicate. They don't need to talk to people who can't do sign language. Uh, it was really difficult for me to follow who this was because I realized... Uh, that they do say her name a few times, but mostly they refer to her as Mrs. Ms. Dodd. Yeah. Um, and there is no character credited as Ms. Dodd That's true. in the in the film. I was like, I was like, oh, who is this person? Yeah. She asks what makes Amy qualified to teach here, and Amy says that she worked at Horace Mann's School for the Deaf for a number of years, not as an instructor, but as an assistant of sorts. And Malvina laughs off this flimsy qualification. In class. Henry is still distracted by Amy's beautiful face and keeps signing to his classmates about it. Malvina is here to translate Amy's words into sign language because Amy doesn't speak it, but eventually she plans to have them all reading lips well enough that they won't need Malvina in the classroom. She encourages the students to touch the side of her cheek to feel the vibrations that her voice causes. When she gets to a student in the back row, the kid freaks out and starts knocking stuff over because he doesn't want her to touch his hand. This is the bully kid. Yeah. Which I think you would just back off instead of still trying to like continue right, but to she, touch him <laughs> she can tell he looks scared and she's trying to comfort him at the same time and so it's like it's hard she's fighting this instinct that she has I, I, you, you back off at this point if somebody doesn't want to be touched it's not my approach i just keep touching him <laughs> just keep touching <laughs> him keep touching keep touching the children <laughs> the other teacher helen is drawn in by the commotion and gives malvina a nasty look like why didn't you warn her not to touch that one kid <laughs> <laughs> the one that you says can touch his... all the rest yeah. of them. What? No. <laughs> that one kid for some reason doesn't like it. I think it's weirder that all the other ones like it. None of this is spoken out loud. It's just implied with facial expressions like, why are you letting this happen in here? And Malvina's like, I don't know. <laughs> Later, Amy asks Helen why Malvina doesn't like her, and she says that she means well. Apparently, Malvina taught all these kids sign language. Sorry, it's Malvina, I think. Apparently, Malvina taught all these kids sign language. And Helen taught the blind kids Braille. She encourages Amy to keep trying. Amy is introduced to a child named Wesley Moody, who's sitting by himself on a bale of hay. He's blind, and he tells Amy that Mr. Moon, his imaginary friend, told him that his eyes will start working magically on his fifth birthday. I don't think it's an imaginary friend. I think it's the creepy puppet wooden toy that he has. Right, but if it's talking, that's 
Par- <laughs> at least partially imaginary. <laughs> or, Unless this okay. is another deformed child. I'm just saying. <laughs> or, or some other child is pretending to be the puppet. This yeah. is toy. It's not an imaginary friend. The it's... voice is imaginary. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> Unless, like Richard said, the other kids are sneaking up beside his bed and going, Hello, Wesley. In the middle of the night. Your eyes will open soon. <laughs> oh blind kids no one has bothered to tell wesley any different because they're all monsters (laughs) eventually someone will have to tell him none of us have the courage to tell him the truth what is wrong with you (laughs) tell the kid it turns out though that it was fine (laughs) nobody needed to tell this kid that oh Oh, jesus (laughs) in her room later she digs out the photo of the kid in her desk the kid in her desk. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you mean is that much she funnier has... than I expected it to be. <laughs> in her desk, there's a photo of a kid. <sighs> in her room, she digs out the photo in her desk, and it's a framed photo of a smiling child, presumably hers. We cut back to the home she left at the beginning of the story, where her husband is being questioned about her disappearance. At first I thought this was like the police arresting him, but he's meeting with a private investigator to try and track her down. We cut back to Amy's classroom, where she's still trying to teach the kids to read her lips. Malvina is signing everything, like she's paid to do, but Amy asks her to stop because they'll never learn if they're not looking at her. Malvina is obviously insulted and slams the door on her way out of the classroom. In Helen's classroom, she's teaching the kids spelling, when Amy pops in to ask a question. One of Helen's students, Walter Ray, says he feels sick, and Amy offers to take him to the nurse. You better take just George, too. They never go anywhere without each other. The nurse takes his temperature, and everything seems fine, but Walter seems to have some severe intestinal trouble. Amy learns from the nurse that they don't have a doctor on staff because they can't afford one. We have no funds for proper heating. We have no funds for repairs. Our chapel burned down. We have no money to build another one. We give the children food that's barely nutritional. She rushes outside to ask Mr. Pruitt to take his carriage to the next town to collect Dr. Corcoran, the nearest doctor. Amy is waiting in the nurse's office with Walter Ray when Mr. Pruitt returns with Dr. Corcoran in the doctor's car. He has a vehicle that's not horse-powered. This is a period piece, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In case I didn't say that. So, horses. I mean, horses, horses, horses. I suspect early 1900s. Like 1913, exactly. Okay. Amy is waiting in the nurse's office with Walter Ray when Mr. Pruitt returns with Dr. Corcoran in his car, and they are both clearly drunk, singing about how drunk they are. Oh, oh, you and me, little brown child, how I love thee. <laughs> Amy tells the boys in the nurse's office the story of prince john who was cursed by a wizard to wear an eye patch and he wasn't allowed to take it off until he did a good deed which he was not accustomed to doing eventually prince john was nicer and to show support everyone in the kingdom wore eye patches until they did good deeds as well dr corcoran enters and suddenly starts finishing the story he says that one person in town wore the eye patch over his mouth instead of his eyes because that person was his great great grandfather (laughs) it's like totally has nothing to do with my story but thanks for coming in and finishing it dr corcoran introduces himself but he slurs his words a bit prompting amy to suggest he drink some coffee before seeing to the children amy steps outside while the doctor cares for the child and henry sneaks up on her to present a drawing he did labeled amy on the lips she thanks henry for the drawing and on his way out of the building dr corcoran explains 
that Walter Ray snuck into the kitchen and ate a whole bag of green apples, which commonly causes extreme stomach pains. Kids start piling into Dr. Corcoran's car before he can leave. Malvina rushes out yelling at him, reminding him that the children are not allowed to leave the premises, but the doctor claims not to know the rules, which means it's impossible for him to break them, even though they were just spelled out to him very explicitly. And he drives away with a bunch of kids. <laughs> I guess he just looped around and dropped them off again, but maybe he just takes a batch of kids every once in a while. Malvina takes their moment alone to remind Amy that she's an outsider and that she doesn't like her or her ways, in case that wasn't already perfectly clear. Later, Amy and Helen are folding laundry, and Helen says that if she lived in Boston and were as attractive as Amy, that she would have just married the first rich man who asked her. I did. Marriage doesn't take away from loneliness. The relationship ended when she realized that she had to apologize every time she wanted something. She also reveals to Helen that her husband has no idea where she is, and that nobody here knows her story except Helen now. The next day, Amy flies a kite with the kids. Amy's pulling with the wind instead of against it, so the kite's not going anywhere, until Dr. Corcoran points out her mistake. He flirts with her for a bit until she reminds him that she's teaching a class and asks him to leave, rather curtly. Yeah. She watches him walk away and immediately crashes the kite into a tree. Back at Amy's home, the private investigator is talking to Mr. Medford's housekeeper. Mr. Medford is Amy's husband. The housekeeper is a big fan of Amy's and is hesitant to help this private investigator find her. But she does give some information that helps him along his way. We learn from the housekeeper here that Amy and her husband had a son together and that he was born deaf. Apparently, Amy took the child to a special school every day, but the child later passed away. Henry and Amy get the kite out of the tree and she teaches him to say kite with his own voice. It takes a few tries, but he manages. Amy's so excited by this accomplishment that she runs to show Mr. Ferguson. Malvina is less impressed. One word. Do you really think one word is going to do him any good? One word will lead to Moa. Later, Amy finds Walter Ray and Just George wearing eye patches on their ears. Since they're blind, and this would be the equivalent of wearing an eye patch over your eye, if you could see. They plan to remove them once they've done good deeds, like Prince John from her story. The kids receive a pile of letters, and Amy reads Wesley's to him. His family plans to visit soon. Someone from the state board comes to visit and asks Mr. Ferguson about the articulation program. That's the speaking program, and is disappointed to hear that in two months' time, one student has learned one word. Malvina shit-talks the program for a while, and the man from the state board demands a full report. At dinner that night, Amy notices that Helen is absent, and is informed that Helen is with her student Wesley in the nurse's office because he's sick with fever. Dr. Corcoran diagnoses him with rheumatic fever, and prepares them for the worst. Wesley is still in good spirits because on Tuesday he turns five, and that's the day that his sight is supposed to come back. Or start, I guess. Again, no one corrects him. We cut to the Horace Mann School for the Deaf, where the private investigator has ended up, speaking with one of the school's administrators. The woman tells the PI that Amy's son used to have episodes where he would turn blue and faint. She said that Amy had unrealistic expectations of what her child could grow up to do. We cut back to the nurse's office where Wesley is sleeping, and Amy is having a nightmare in a chair beside the bed until Dr. Corcoran shakes her awake. That night, Wesley's fever is up to 105 degrees. They put him in an ice bath for a while, and a nurse offers to boil the linens to keep them clean and safe, but Dr. Corcoran isn't convinced that boiling them is enough. Burn them. Dr. Corcoran tells Amy that they recently had a local epidemic of influenza, and it killed a family member in every family of the town. He suddenly notices that Wesley has passed, and the music gets spooky here, 
as he turns to Amy and tries to usher her out of the room, insisting he needs towels and blankets and stuff because he just wants her to not be in the room with the kid. Right. He hasn't given any indication that the kid right. has passed. So, he's... But it seems clear to us yes. that he noticed yeah. something happened and the music got real somber. He does that movie thing where you wipe the eyes of the deceased closed and then he pulls the blanket over Wesley's face. The other nurse, Hazel, returns sobbing and Amy finally realized what happened. She seems to take it the worst because she's probably reliving the trauma of her own child's death. She shares with Dr. Corcoran the story of her son. When he turned two, they discovered that he was deaf and later discovered that he'd been born with a heart defect. He was institutionalized against her will by her husband and the doctor. Did you have any other children? My husband said I wasn't capable of having normal children. Oh, dear Jesus. I guess it should be said, too, that when she complains about her husband, um, he wants everything to be perfect. You know, like he would complain about her leaving the tooth powder cap off or something like that. You know, these little things. I mean, to be fair, she says that she did it every day for 10 years. (laughs) <laughs> which would be <laughs> infuriating <laughs> but, but still you're right but it's also but, his powder it's not gonna dry out but yeah. the fact that he's equating also like leaving the tooth powder cap off with you bore imperfect children like that's just it's just horrible right and at the time like fathers still were like well if there's anything wrong with the kid your uterus did it because it has <laughs> nothing to do with genes or anything like that it's nothing i contributed 50 percent of that's for sure We cut to Ferguson's office, where he speaks with Mr. Grimes, a man attempting to enroll his 19-year-old son into their school for the deaf. Ferguson informs him that Mervyn, the son, is too old to benefit from their teachings. The man is worried how his son will take care of himself after he and his wife pass. Mr. Ferguson relents and allows the man to enroll Mervyn in the school. Ferguson leads Mervyn to Amy's classroom, where he takes a seat at a desk. Yeah, and he's he's huge, by the way. Right. I mean, he's also way older, but... Even for a 19-year-old, he's huge. Right. But, like, yeah, he's bigger than his father. Like, he's, yeah. a, he's a large man. We cut back to the PI asking Mr. Medford about his late son. And Medford explains that the son was enrolled in a school until he passed away about three years ago. The PI informs him that Mrs. Medford, Amy, had volunteered at that school for the last year of their son's life, something that he was apparently unaware of. He assumes that Amy would have wanted to continue this work potentially at another school. It's mail day again at the school, and Amy tells Henry that his mother is coming. It's her first visit in a long time since they couldn't afford it before, and he wants to know how to say mother out loud when she gets here. We get a montage of her sounding out the letters, and then syllables, and then the whole word, but he figures it out. All the students attend a sermon on a grass hill near the school in the absence of a church. At first, I thought this was Wesley's funeral. Yeah, totally. (laughs) But everyone looks much too happy for that to be the case. There's also only one person buried here <laughs> that's what's going yeah. on yeah dr corcoran arrives just as the services are ending and he invites amy and her students on a picnic they did mention earlier in the film that the church burned down right yeah and they haven't had the funds to rebuild it but up until the point where even at this point when he comes says like hey you look really great today i was like dude fucking, this is a funeral <laughs> yeah <laughs> what are you doing it's like are you done listening to that boring old sermon from so-and-so and it's like A child was buried today. (laughs) No, that's not what's happening. After their picnic, as Amy's gathering up the children to head home, she realizes that Henry is missing. He's wandered off to a group of kids playing football nearby. When they throw the ball out of bounds, 
Henry collects it, but he doesn't understand anything they say to him, and a fight nearly breaks out until Amy arrives to explain that he's deaf. Henry tells Amy that he'd like to learn how to play football, and then we get a montage of Dr. Corker and teaching them the basics. Mervyn is obviously the ringer. He's like the water boy of the team because yeah. he's a decade <laughs> older than everyone else. I'm going to say the, the Spear Trucker Jones of, uh, of, MASH. of MASH. Yeah. Back in his office, the private investigator puts his entire staff on the task of collecting news stories about every school for the deaf and blind in the country. Amy and Ferguson touch base with the man who heads up the local football club and arrange a game between their students and the local kids. The man is hesitant, but eventually agrees. The students are losing the game toward the end, but they're able to make adjustments to the play on the fly by giving each other hand signals. Mervyn doesn't have a firm grasp on the rules yet, and he keeps trying to bring the ball to Amy. As the game comes to a close, Dr. Corcoran unveils a secret weapon. A trick play, sort of. He whispers something in Amy's ear, and she walks over behind the end zone. <laughs> they should have done this at the beginning of the game. The play starts with a few lateral passes, and the ball ends up with Mervyn, who makes a run for Amy just past the end zone. He blows through all the tacklers and manages to tie the game up 12-12, and then Henry makes the extra point kick, and they've won the game. The consequent newspaper article makes its way to Mr. Medford, and now he knows where she is. Dr. Corcoran invites Amy to his home for dinner. He tells her how beautiful she is and compares her eyes to the waters of a lake that he grew up nearby. She thanks him for dinner, and he promises a better meal next time. She announces that she's married, and he takes it a lot better than the asshole from Tess did last year. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I feel like it's a little unusual how persistent and how much he doesn't care in this movie that she's married. Because I feel like in the times, that's inaccurate. Well, if it's a small enough town that his other choices are Hazel, Helen, or Malvina then maybe he's just like, all right, finally, someone's super hot moved to town and yeah, I have a shot with her. But I feel like... He's also a little older too. But I feel like the social disgrace associated with this, like, I like, can she even get a divorce? Is there even a, a, a viable path to a relationship here? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that he's the kind of guy that doesn't really care a lot about social mores. I think that's why he's a doctor who occasionally works for free at the school that otherwise the city considers an embarrassment to even have in town. Dr. Corcoran accuses Amy of running from her feelings. He gives her a long kiss goodnight on Blu-ray and <laughs> insists she check it out. Rennie Harlan's finest film. She starts to open the door to leave, but then stops and turns to face him and lets the door close. And we fade to her classroom the next day. I'm pretty sure the implication here is that she stayed the night with him. In class, Malvina arrives to remove Henry to see his visiting parents. And on the way to see them, Henry pauses and gestures for Malvina's permission to touch her face and hear the word mother as a last-minute reminder of how to say the word, what the vibrations should feel like. Feel, feel the word mother, not right. hear the word mother. That's how he hears. I don't know. I'm trying to save myself here. <laughs> Malvina is able to put aside her difference of opinion and says the word for Henry with his hand on her cheek. Like, she could have just been like, fart. <laughs> but she didn't do that. When Henry enters the office, his mother is seated and possibly blind because she's not following Henry with her eyes. This would explain his compassion for the blind students at the school. Obviously, being blind and having a deaf son would be devastating because you're limited to facial expressions or sign language, neither of which she can appreciate. He kneels before her and he takes her hands and he says the word mother and she recognizes his voice even though it's the first time he's said anything. She leans forward to take him in her arms and the two hug each other tight and I just 
lost it here. Yeah. <laughs> this moment is devastating, and I was just sobbing in my computer. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I'm not laughing at you. I was also you're laughing with me. I was I was crying with you at a different time when I watched the movie by myself. Yeah. <laughs> It's obviously a devastating moment, and Malvina is clearly moved by the effects that the word had on Henry's mother. Mr. Ferguson collects Amy from her classroom, and as he's leading her to the office, he explains, you know, she's blind, and this is this is so much more meaningful than we even realize that she's able to hear him talk now, and he wants her to see the fruits of her labor. We cut directly from here to the state board, who are deciding to rescind the school's funding on account of their wasteful programs like the football game, they also feel that the publicity of the game brought unwanted attention to the school, which he calls an asylum. And Mr. Ferguson has to correct him that it's a school. It's just a school. For gifted youngsters. Amy and Henry are waiting outside during the meeting, and when Amy hears them talk about the wasted effort of teaching deaf children to speak, she's heard enough. She drags Henry into the office, and the chairman is furious that she would enter this closed meeting, and worse, that she would bring in one of the students from the school. He orders her out, and suggests that her program is merely theatrics. Everyone knows that the deaf cannot speak! Yes, I can. Meaning that not only does Henry have more words than we've seen so far, but he was able to read the angry chairman's lips and respond to him. It reminded me of the scene in The Elephant Man when Dr. Treves is trying to prove to Cargom that this patient is a human being. Yeah. Everyone's so kind. <laughs> Very kind. Henry continues speaking, pleading with the man to help the school. Back in her classroom, Amy asks Mervyn to point out today on the calendar. He points to November 2nd, 1913, which is actually over. And Amy asks Henry if he can help. Henry points to November 5th, the correct answer, meaning that this scene takes place the same day that actress Vivian Lee was born. Best known for her appearances in Gone with the Wind and Streetcar Named Desire. Remember, remember, the 5th of November. The children in class start passing around an illustration of Mervyn as a monkey, and when the drawing makes its way to Henry, he immediately wrinkles it up and picks a fight with the artist. That same deaf bully kid. Amy breaks up the fight, and Henry moves to shake Mervyn's hand. Mervyn offers Henry a cookie to thank him, and we get a foreboding note in the score as the scene fades out on the bully's face looking angry. The next day, Dr. Corcoran takes Amy out to the park in his car and offers to teach her to drive, but she's scared to learn. Now, every modern woman needs to know how. Well, then, maybe I'm not very modern. Well, I can teach her that, too. Later on the road, Amy asks how she's doing as she slaloms exaggeratedly <laughs> down the road, eventually crashing through a picket fence. After half-acidly mending the fence, Corcoran tells Amy that he has something important to tell her. He turns away and shouts to the hills, I love you, Amy Medford! But unfortunately, this is the exact phrase that turns her back into a frog. And when he turns around, she's gone. Just kidding. She's still human. She's just hiding from him. And he finds all of her clothes in a pile on the floor. No, I'm kidding. She's wearing all of them. And she's hiding behind a tree. <laughs> and she pops out to admit that she loves him too. And a chase ensues. Corcoran turns into a dragon. No, that doesn't happen either. He tackles her to the grass and they kiss. You really didn't like this scene, huh? You really just, what? Your mind was no, wandering. I just, I loved it. <laughs> I was just filling in the blanks. You know, I was reading between the lines. <laughs> reading a fantasy story. <laughs> I was just a reading fan a book fiction. while I was watching the movie. <laughs> There's a lot of The Amy Princess and the Dragon. <laughs> Later in Ferguson's office, Malvina leads Amy in to answer to a letter the school received. It's from the detective agency seeking her whereabouts. 
Amy tells them the story about leaving her husband and not wanting him to find her. Also, that she has no credentials. Right. She further admits that she forged the letter of recommendation from the Horace School, and she lied about everything when she saw the job posting here because she knew it was her calling. I feel like she did volunteer there for a year. She should have been able to at least get a letter of recommendation. Yeah. But then the investigation would have been able to track her down. Figure out where she was going. Right. And she was in hiding. But all that being said, the school needs to instantly cut ties with her the yes. second they find out any of these things they needed to yes and no type, this is 1913 ties. and they're desperate for staff and this woman can teach deaf people to speak which so far they can think of literally zero other people who can do but that. again i think that the harm that her being associated with the school could do could shut the what school harm? down what harm would it do what harm would it do yeah if the community it- knew that Oh, a married woman had left her husband and was teaching by herself at this school who had no credentials to do so. But if they read the whole article, they would know what she's teaching, which is teaching deaf people to speak. It doesn't matter. that, That would not matter. They would shut the place down. I mean, I guess they're trying to shut it down anyway. I agree with you. Thank you. No, I, that's that's what I was doing at the end there when I said I guess they're trying to shut it down anyway. Because the, the point being, well, I guess they're, they're already trying to shut it down, so why wouldn't they use this as another excuse to do so? Ferguson suggests that she write a letter to her husband to avoid a scandal at the school, and Amy explains that her husband kept her like a prized object and not a person. Amy runs out of his office, and Malvina is quick to follow her. I mean, it's 1913. I don't think that that would come as like a shock to anyone. They'd be like and like yeah you're friggin hot lady yeah what else is he supposed to do with you what are you proposing you are amy i know what you're going to say that i have no business here that i don't belong well maybe you're right but i'm not going to give up no matter how much you want me to i've got to succeed otherwise nothing in my life or my child's life makes any sense Amy walks away, and we can tell from the look on Malvina's face that this is not at all what she came to say, that she's made a transformation in the wake of Henry's reunion with his mother, or union maybe. It's not even a reunion because it's really the first time they've talked to each other. I think she wants to apologize here, but she can't put anything into words before Amy's gone again. We cut to a Christmas dinner, and all the kids are decorating a tree in the middle of the cafeteria. Henry asks where the angel is that goes on the top of the tree, and Amy has to go dig it out of a storage room. So at this point, I was like, Wait, so we just established that it was early November. Yeah, a month has gone by. And month, she's still teaching at the school. Yeah, she's still teaching at the school, and her husband like still hasn't found her. Still hasn't found her. This I don't know how far away she is. I, I I I agree, but this also is in the time telephones exist. Right, um, but I don't know how confident they are that she's even at this school because I don't think that Ferguson replied to this letter. Uh, I I would agree that he didn't reply to the letter letter. But they know that she's there because they got a picture of her. Was she in the picture? She was. Yeah, okay. she was. Yeah. Well, then they know that she was at least at that football yeah. game. Right. And, and and this is a lazy investigator who sends a letter. He's like, is she like, there? Let hey, me know. Hey, can you check around <laughs> for this person I'm trying to find? I'm getting paid a lot of money. Definitely I have people on staff. Yeah, but. definitely don't tip her to the point that like we're coming to yeah, find yeah, her. Right. And he also, he has two employees that work for him exclusively to find this woman. It's like, send one of them if you're too lazy to go yourself. 
But when Amy digs this angel out of the storage room, she seems reminded of something when she finds it, and she distractedly drops it to the floor, shattering it in three pieces. As she clutches the shards to her chest, she is suddenly sobbing. Just George, one of the blind children at the school, wearing eye patches over his ears still, follows the sound of her crying to check on her. Apparently the eye patches are not blocking the sound. He tells her to stop crying because it will be Christmas soon. On their way back to the festivities, she asks how he got his name, and he says that his parents just left him on the side of a road and that he wandered to a poorhouse. And when they asked his name, he insisted that his name was Just George. He wouldn't give them a last name, and so they just started calling him Just George. Amy takes his hand and touches her own smile and says that he gave her that smile, and that's a good enough deed to warrant removing the ear patches. <laughs> ear patches. <laughs> the bully kid is sitting under the tree and starts pelting Mervyn with ornaments. Henry drags the bully to the floor again, and Amy has to break it up. This whole storyline is getting a little bit repetitive, but I guess it's still building. Henry removes a star ornament and directs Mervyn to hang it at the top of the tree in place of the broken angel. This reminds me of the end of Rudolph. We're like, oh, we have this tall monster to put the star on top of the tree (laughs) now. He has a purpose. Finally, (laughs) as he just bleeds from his teeth holes. Does that happen in the in the short too? They take his teeth out. Yes, yes. Because we were reading the <laughs> Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer book, and they're like, "Oh yeah, they they got the monster unconscious and they took all of his teeth out." And I was like, "Jesus, I don't remember this in the story." <laughs> it is because <laughs> the kid wants to be a dentist. Yeah, Hermie so, wants to be. He's like, I so want to be a just dentist. Practicing on unwilling participants <laughs> by taking their teeth out of their head. That's yeah, what, after that's you how knock you them unconscious with big boulders, that's yeah. what you do. Later, we see Mervyn sneak into the wood shop to take a box off of a shelf. He takes out what looks like a string of sausage links and starts whittling <laughs> them. <laughs> Maybe they're wood. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to my lunch? He's just very slowly carving shavings of people's lunch. <laughs> I was really worried that this would be the scene where the bully catches Mervyn alone and deals him a fatal blow with this knife, but we just fade out from here. In Amy's room, Henry beats her at a game of checkers as she teaches him the word champion. He steals a kiss on his way out, and she gives him the checkerboard as a gift, explaining that it once belonged to her son. And There's he a- doesn't question this at all. Like, oh, you have a son, or what? Where's your son now? What is? What do you mean, your son? I won it from him, and now you won it from me. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like the dark saber. <laughs> yeah, it goes to the victor. There's a knock at the door, and Corcoran enters in a full Santa costume to deliver a Christmas present. But it's not Christmas yet. Yes, it is. In Australia. I kind of wanted him to just reach into a Santa bag and pull out her husband's head. (laughs) (laughs) Instead, he reads her a poem, which is also a good gift, I guess. (laughs) She guesses that it's a Yeats poem, and he is flattered because he wrote it himself. Malvina leads the kids singing some carols around the tree, and then the kids hold up signs and wish everyone a Merry Christmas using their words. Santa Corcoran enters and takes a seat by the tree to hand out presents to all the students. Mervyn is excited in line to see Santa and pulls out the wooden sausage links, which are now painted to resemble a snake, and he hands the gift to Henry. But the deaf bully slaps the snake toy to the floor and steps on it, destroying it immediately. Mervyn gives the jerk a pimp slap across the room, and he just flies into a pile of chairs. The bully is unconscious and bleeding from the nose by the time Dr. Corcoran can get to him. Mervyn is terrified by what he's done, and he runs off, and Henry quickly follows, worried. Corcoran announces to the room that the bully will be fine, but obviously Henry and Mervyn don't hear this, and they are running out into the woods. 
Moments later, Malvina hears a knock at the door and answers it to find Amy's husband. Is there an Amy Medford here? I beg your pardon. I'm looking for her. I'm her husband. I'm sorry. No, there's no one here by that name. Unfortunately, Amy pops up behind her to ask after Henry and Mervyn. Yeah. So first of all, uh, Medford was just ready to give up. He was going to walk away. He yeah. was going to walk away from this. And then Amy had to pop in. And Malvina's like, oh, I cannot win with this woman. Yeah. Because now it looks like I'm setting her up. Yeah. To, it looks like I invited this guy in or I called him here to come Yeah, exactly. Especially when she says, I'm sorry. And then walks away. Yeah. Right. I was like, did you do this to no, her? Yeah. yeah so I wanted, what I was going to say because she doesn't know I really she wanted, tried to defend her. Yeah. He should have. There, We should have at least gotten a moment where he said, oh, you're telling these people to lie that you don't work here? Like... Yeah. Something to indicate to her that Malvina yeah. was for once on her side. Because right. she never knows. She goes right. the rest of the movie without ever knowing. But I, I knew that she was going to make this transformation, that she was going to suddenly be on her side. Especially after she was, when they keep cutting to her reaction shots in the office when she's saying, you know, he treated me like an object. He never listened to me. And she's thinking back on her past relationships that obviously haven't gone well because she's by herself here at the school. But yeah, unfortunately, Amy pops up behind her asking after Henry and Mervyn and Husband Elliot sees that Malvina was lying on her behalf. Elliot wants to talk, and she leads him to her room. He tells her that he's been through hell looking for her, and he tries to pack her things to leave. She lets him know that she's staying here with the school, with her work, her friends, and the children. Elliot is desperate to keep her, and even waves the prospect of another child in her face, but it's too late for that now. Malvina enters the room to inform Amy that Henry has run off. I think he might be trying to run after Mervyn. We can't find him anywhere. It seems weird to say, Henry's missing. And then offhand mention, he's chasing another missing child. Yeah. <laughs> Amy rushes out the door to search for them. And Ferguson assumes that Mervyn would be headed home just over the tracks. And right away, Amy is concerned that they may be on the tracks and unable to hear a train coming. Everyone rushes out the door. I, which I think is really dumb. Because the second she said that, I'm like, you they would feel the train before they hear the train. Well, if there's if they're on the rails, they would. They wouldn't if they're between the rails. Well, also this train has a, a light on the front a of it. light on the front of it. Yeah, but also, I feel like both of these kids have to have be at least aware of the concept yeah. of trains, and you don't need to run on the tracks. You can run alongside of the yeah. tracks. Yeah. So everything about this, the fact that they think that they're going to be crushed, is stupid. But we see Mervin get onto the tracks, and start running along them. Henry's very close behind him on the same path. Corcoran drives Amy and Ferguson through the night, and we see a train coming. Henry trips on the tracks, and he can feel the train coming by landing with his hand on the rail. He starts running faster, worried that Mervyn won't come to the same conclusion, but can't stay ahead of the train and eventually dives out of its way. Mervyn is less fortunate, and the train catches up with him and runs him down. Henry opens his mouth to scream, and we hear the train whistle blow in place of his voice. Later, we see Dr. Corcoran cover Mervyn's body with a sheet. Amy remarks out loud that perhaps Malvina was right. A word doesn't make a difference if you're still deaf. It only benefits the people who can hear you. It bothers me that nobody is trying to comfort Henry in this moment because he's the one who just watched another kid yeah. get hit by a train. Yeah. But we see Amy tell Corcoran that she has to leave the school, that she's experienced too much loss already. Mervyn's parents arrive to collect their son's remains, Mervyn's mother cries that the school was all for nothing and that her son was incapable of being taught. Henry tells them that Mervyn was his friend. Mervyn's parents are shocked at the student's abilities. Is he deaf? Totally deaf. 
He's learning to speak. Now you see, Ma. I told you they could teach him. Mervyn's mother returns to the carriage they rode in on to retrieve their younger daughter, Pearl, who is also deaf. And here's where I cried the second time. <laughs> you didn't cry when the first little boy died? No, I didn't. Oh my God, that one was the one that got me the worst. Uh, no, I, I lost it for him talking to his mom and I lost it for them giving up the second child to the school because they realized that the program could work. Yeah. But she offers up Pearl to the program in the hopes that they might make more progress, which they missed out on with Mervyn because he was obviously so old by the time he had entered the school. Amy and Dr. Corcoran write back to the school with Henry and Pearl. And when they get back, Elliot announces that he has packed Amy's things and they're leaving. Amy points out how typically dismissive this is of her husband. She used to blame him for ignoring her wants, but she realizes now that she allowed him to mistreat her this way and that she's learning not to let people treat her this way anymore. Henry urges Amy upstairs to her room and she tells Elliot that she's learned as much from Henry as he has from her, if not more. Elliot is insistent that they leave together. She explains that even if he drags her out by force, she will keep running away to new schools for the rest of her life. We belong to each other. Amy, I won't let you do this. If you fight me, if you make it impossible for me to stay here, I'll find another school and another until you finally hear me and realize that I mean what I say. It's a fascinating metaphor that at the same time as she's teaching the kids to hear her, she is teaching herself to be heard. And Elliot is a stubborn student, reminding her pointlessly that she belongs to him, but he finally has a wah-wah moment when she explains, I belong to myself, and moves past him up the stairs to her new home. The film's theme begins again, and we see the credits over a freeze frame of Amy's packed bags at the bottom of the stairs after her husband leaves. The end. Our director here was Vincent McAvity. He directed Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo and Herbie Goes Bananas for Us last year, and he followed this up with a couple episodes of the Herbie TV series. The writer was Noreen Stone. This was her first credit, but there's nothing else I recognized. The music here was from Robert F. Brunner. He's a regular Disney composer with credits on That Darn Cat, The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, The Barefoot Executive, and The Strongest Man in the World. Cinematographer Leonard J. Smith was the DP on Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo, the third Herbie movie, and later the 9 to 5 TV series, and eventually 20 episodes of Coach. Editor G. Greg McLaughlin also edited Disney's Black Hole. Ah, very nice. Jenny Agater played Amy Medford. She was Jessica in Logan's Run. She's Joanne Simpson in Child's Play 2. She shows up as Nurse Alex Price later this season in John Landis's An American Werewolf in London. More recently, she has appeared as a member of the World Security Council that oversees S.H.I.E.L.D. operations in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, appearing in Avengers and Winter Soldier, wherein she technically also plays Black Widow for a moment. Right, right. Because Black Widow is in disguise as her character. I remember when we watched that scene, you were really bummed when she took off the costume and it turned out that it was it was not Jenny Agater because you wanted it to be this older woman beating the shit out of people. Oh, yeah. No, that I totally wanted that. I was like, that would... That would be just great. Like, I really want some movies. There's no reason be, that they couldn't have done it like, that way. Let's not be ageist. Like, let's just have some cool older person be badass. Uh, she also plays Sister Julianne. <clears throat> is it Julian? Sister Julian on uh, Call the Midwife? Yeah. Um, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Midwife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good show. I only watched the first season or two, but I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Barry Newman played Dr. Ben Corcoran. Uh, we just had him as Kowalski in last month's Patreon review of Vanishing Point, where we mentioned that he also played Kit's agent in Bowfinger. 
Lou Fant played Lyle Ferguson. He was Harvey in Resurrection last year, and the actor himself was the son of deaf parents, and he helped to establish the National Theater for the Deaf. Nanette Fabre played Malvina. She was on coach as the mother of Craig T. Nelson's wife on the show. She was actually the aunt of the actress playing her daughter on the show. Yeah. Uh, Louise Fletcher was also up for this role, and both actresses had personal connections to the subject matter because Nanette was hearing impaired, and Fletcher's parents were deaf. Lance Legault played Edgar Wambuck. He'll be back as Colonel Glass and Stripes later this year, and in the late 80s, he played Joe Rogan on a show called Werewolf. Lucille Benson played Rose Metcalf. She's back as Mrs. Elrod in Halloween 2 later this year. Lonnie Chapman was Virgil Goodlow. I think that's the head of the state board. Is that Goodlow? No, Goodlow is the coach of the other Yeah, yeah, because his brothers team. was the... He played Kelly in When Time Ran Out last year, and he was also Pa Beecher, Judge Reinhold's dad in Running Scared, and he's Deke Carter in The Birds. Brian Freshman played Mervyn Grimes. He was Barf on the blue team in Midnight Madness last year, um, and he was also Bleats in our recent review of Backroads. That's the boxer who Tommy Lee Jones beat in the ring because he was slow out of the corner. Jane Daly played Molly Tribble. She was Terry in Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, and I mentioned her as the wife of Detective Bullets Bambarella, who shows up in a neck brace in our Minnesota review of The Black Marble earlier this year. Don Jeffrey played Carolyn Chapman. We'll see her later this year as Vera in Mommy Dearest. Frances Bay was Mrs. Lindsay. She's Mrs. Lewinowski in Schlesinger's next movie, Honky Tonk Freeway, and later Buddy Buddy in 1981. She's also Aunt Barbara in Blue Velvet. But I think she's best known as Grandma in Happy Gilmore. Yeah. Uh, where she lives in an abusive old folks home. <laughs> uh, more recently, she was Aunt Ginny on The Middle, and her final credit is a return to David Lynch for the 2014 Twin Peaks resurrection. Um, I did you, I can't. Did you mention Mrs. Pickman? No, I didn't. Oh, from the In the Mouth of Madness. Yeah, where she's like the old lady who runs the hotel, but has her husband like crawling on the floor behind her and just keeps kicking him. Yeah, and Pickman is the is the artist, right, in the H.P. Lovecraft story that, right, right. that paints the devil. Pickman's and, model. Yeah. Virginia Vincent played Edna Hancock. She was Ethel Carter in The Hills Have Eyes from DP Eric Saarinen from our previous film, Modern Romance. Norma Burton played Carruthers. Um, he was Felix Leiter in Diamonds Are Forever, and he was the hunt leader in Planet of the Apes. He played Marty Berger, the boss of Fade to Black's Eric Binford last year, wherein we compared him to a slightly older Dan Hedaya mm. for the mm -hmm. time. David Hollander played Just George. He was the young boy with coffee from Airplane last year who sits down next to the girl who likes her coffee like her men. On IMDb, he's also credited as the editor of The Crimson in A Small Circle of Friends, which I'm pretty sure is a mistake because we confirmed that the David Hollander who played the editor in that film was also the actual editor in the 60s. So unless a kid was editing The Crimson before he was born, I'm comfortable calling that a mistake. Corey Bumper Yothers played Wesley Moody. He was Kelly, one of the drug-dealing children in Getting Wasted in 1980, which we just covered with a belated minisode. In this movie, he's just credited as Bumper. Is he? Yeah. yeah. Well, so, like, the IMDb has his full name, but, like, I, I was I was watching the credits, and it just says Bumper, and I'm like, what the hell? That's and I had to look choice. it up, because I'm like, that's weird. Ronnie Scribner played Walter Ray, and he was Ralphie Glick in Salem's Lot from Toby Hooper. Um, I like this film a lot. I liked it a lot, too. Big thumbs up for me. <laughs> uh, this movie was just painful to get through. 
I had to watch it in like you're so five, wrong. It's crazy. Seven to five minute increments because I just couldn't stand it. <laughs> wow. Um, I feel like the message that this has uh, is very progressive on all fronts. I think that um, I like what it's saying about her as a human being. It's I like what it's saying about these children as human beings. Um, I like who the good people are and who the bad people are. I think works really well. Yeah, I mean, I like all of those things too, but I found them a little anachronistic to what I thought would be true sure. in 1913. Yeah, that makes sense that this, <laughs> yeah. this story would be unlikely. But I also don't think that this that these places didn't exist in 1913. Yeah. I think that there were there were progressive people throughout time. They were just localized, you know. Sure. And they make it pretty clear that the town is not on their side. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, like like you said, you lost it a couple times. I definitely lost it when the little boy died of fever and, you know, and then at the end when they gave away their other child and were just like. Yeah, that, just, that killed me because it was yeah. just like it's there. They have such faith in her program just from seeing Henry. Talk. Well, and 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 how desperate they are. To, to have a relationship to be like well to, to to give their kid any chance of making it in the world they're like right. i'm gonna give my child away you know and this is like presumably their last kid i mean yeah it's 1913 so there's probably eight more at home <laughs> i don't know why they just brought one to pick up the brother but still it, it seems like this is their their last kid yeah. that they're like yeah. take this one teach her please right yeah, give my kid a chance. And, and the fact that sad. they brought her that night and let them take them home. Like, we lost one kid already tonight, and we're giving away the other kid the same night. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was devastating. Um, thumbs yeah. up for me, thumbs up for you, thumbs down for Richard. I, really, I yeah. mean, I really liked the... I found the... the the Corcoran guy, he's very charming, which he's such a different character than what we had in Vanishing Point. But you know I what I like? like, who is this guy? But he's also two <laughs> for two, in in my opinion, because he was he was really great in that movie, and I think he was exactly the character he needed to be for that. Yeah. And I think he does the same thing here. I mean, yeah. Disney Disney is very careful with their casting choices, so it makes sense to me that they would they would find the perfect the perfect person for this role. But I just like you said, he's constantly charming. Um, but he's also he doesn't like talk down to anybody, even the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I even like our our sort of you know our our villainous character here who doesn't believe that she could teach you know these kids to talk and that it's not you know it's not worth their time and their effort because you know she and I don't I don't think that like where she's coming from. Uh, I keep forgetting her name, Miss Dobbs. M- Melvina. Melvina. Yeah, she like. I think that it's totally a valid viewpoint that she's just like these these kids are shunned from society. We there's no point in teaching them to talk that's not going to be useful to them. Right. And um but when she sees firsthand the effects. Right, that there that there's more things to talking than just being able to interact with random people. It's like you you're you're making these kids have an ability to connect to other people in their lives i wouldn't be surprised if we'd seen a tear in her eye in that scene but it would have it would have telegraphed the the change right. that's that's happening inside of her i mean i but, feel like everybody knew at that point yeah because they, <laughs> there's like four or five reaction shots of her watching the mother just crying in the kid's arms and it's so clear that i was wrong i was blatantly wrong this is a worthwhile effort and we need to do this more and I wish that she had gotten to say as much to Amy or that she had been able to respond to her when she was stopped in the hallway because 
but I, I also do like that she gets to close the redemptive arc by saying to the ex-husband or the husband I guess still current husband no she's not coming with you she doesn't she's not here go away yeah um because it makes it clear that she's she's picked a side in this fight um and that whole last speech from Amy I thought was brilliant where she's telling her husband that he's he doesn't get to pick these things for her that she doesn't belong to somebody else that she belongs to herself and that she's she apologizes that he doesn't understand but she blames herself for letting him not understand for so long and and again i like those things i still think he would have taken her out by force anyways yeah I, <laughs> no i think he would have but he's not, she's not getting a divorce yeah that, that's not going to happen i don't think she cares about getting a divorce though but then she's not going to be able to be with this other guy why not uh because bigamy is a crime well she's not allowed to marry him right but i just think that she also can't cause a, a, a scandal for him. You know, his business would suffer. The school would suffer. Like this town needs a suffer. doctor and they need a teacher. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that at the very least, I don't think his business would suffer. I don't give a shit who my doctor is having sex with as long as they know how to make my penis longer. That's all I care. <laughs> well, I think that that's all they you keep saying. There's about. nothing they can do. I know that there's something they can do. <laughs> I'm just saying that people people don't make those kind of rational thoughts. Yeah. You know. Some do. Seems like Amy would. It seems like Dr. Corcoran would. They'll find a place. <laughs> they'll find better fake names. They'll move farther <laughs> away. And they'll start their own school She didn't school even change her name. She kept her yeah, name. I yeah. Was yeah. She's not <laughs> trying very hard. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> you forged the letter. You could have written anything. <laughs> Is there an Amy Bedford here? Like, <laughs> she had just changed her name to Janice Joplin. <laughs> like, Perfect. Like any any other name. My favorite future musician. <laughs> <laughs> Jackie Jorp Jump. Yep. All right. Where's this going, Richard? Letterboxd. She, oh, goodness. I didn't put mine down yet. Well, it's pretty low. <gasps> Richard put his down. Yeah, it's um. I have it at uh, 23 which is below Backroads, uh, but above Earthbound. Jessica. Well, I'm still placing mine, but I can tell you that Richard's incorrect with that placement. Oh, no. He's correct. Sorry. <laughs> no, I thought that's what she meant by, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, he was right. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, 23rd. Oh. <laughs> I have to start over because I fucked it up. I moved Charlie Chan up by accident. Oh my god! Not what we want. No, no, that that is a serious crime. Sorry, guys, I was not prepared for this. You surprised me with asking me what the rank would be. Yeah, <laughs> it's a new thing I decided to start doing. <laughs> Almost two hundred episodes into the podcast. <laughs> All right, I have this one at number five out of twenty for the year. That's not right. No, he has it at, in twenty third. So. And I said out of 30 for the year. <laughs> can't read really tiny numbers right now. So it's number five out of 30. Um, it is. Good. It is below My Bloody Valentine and above American Pop. I'm putting this movie at number one. It's just above Modern Romance. Wow. At the top of the list because I really liked this movie. It resonated in me. And I liked the script a lot. 
And the only thing that I would change if I could change anything is go back in time and advise them to shoot this in anamorphic. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a bummer that it's 4.3 because it was for television. But it's at least a nice scan because it's Disney and, you know. Oh, man. The scan that I watched was miserable. You might have liked this movie more if you'd been able to watch it on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I, watched, I, I paid $3 for it. You paid <laughs> $3 on for on it? On Amazon. And they're not using, like, a nice HD oh, God. scan? It's, it was garbage. Oh, my oh, gosh. I'm sorry. But... You could have watched it on Disney Plus. And I don't it would have, have been beautiful. I don't have Disney. I'll How give you my login, do I have Richard. To tell you guys, I don't have Disney Plus. <laughs> I don't. I, I would, I'll give you my login. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I clearly would never. No, share we would my never login. do that. It's <laughs> our login is Kenny. <laughs> Kenny logins. <laughs> Danger zone. <laughs> what do I say at the end? Get out! I think that's everything we have for this one. (laughs) All right, I think that's everything for Amy, which, by the way, if you're trying to search for Amy on IMDb, just don't. Don't even bother. (laughs) Look look it up by Jenny Agater's name or something else, because if you type in Amy 1981, which is the title in the year this movie came out, it's not anywhere in the results. It's nowhere. It's Uh, infuriating. Well, I I found it pretty quickly, but I did have to sort through the Amy Winehouse movies. When I even when I clicked on like all results, Amy was not one of the choices. It was like that movie doesn't have Amy. Did you mean something that starts with the word my? And it's like no, I meant what I typed and then what I put quotation marks around. I I, I think I feel Amy is a very poor title for this film. Um, Amy on the lips. I, yeah. I I feel that's a worse title, but I mean like something like the miracle worker you know like obviously which was well, the title I, that was already I, taken. I but... feel like that was definitely the inspiration for the screenwriter. No, yeah. of course, but. But just saying Amy, it's it's too ambiguous of, I don't know, it, it doesn't it doesn't have enough weight. And I feel like when you hear, oh, there's a movie called Amy, so that means it's a character piece. It's not about the plot, it's about the character. And it's like, yeah. it's not as much. It's more about the plot of what's happening at the school. And I, I think the movie just, it failed in the box office because I think Disney recognized that it was a good film but they overestimated the appeal of like the marketability yeah. of this story which is people people aren't going to be excited to go see a movie about even the miracle worker i feel like people didn't go out in droves to see that right. in theaters well and in like touched by love which is a, very I, similar I, very similar um i can't remember that the lead character's name in that but if that if that was the title of the movie i would have been very upset yeah if this movie was called Touched by Love, that would <laughs> But that one makes more sense because of the blind and the... And they're touching each other's cheeks. Yeah. <laughs> that title is more correct for this. Yeah. What if they called this movie The Sixth Sense and it turned out she was dead the whole time? Would you like it better? No. What if at the end, Albert, <laughs> Albert Brooks had killed Jenny Agater? <laughs> Would you have liked that? He just nowhere. bursts into the room. Kool-Aid man style. <laughs> through a wall <laughs> not even the door <laughs> he comes in through a wall um yeah no i like the movie a lot um it is a lot like touched by love though which i think also was intended as a tv movie and then got like the smallest possible theatrical release yeah. to the point that we could barely confirm that it screened anywhere um but yeah i think that's everything for amy if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com Discord. 
And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Cutter's Way, which IMDb describes like so. Richard spots a man dumping a body. Did you do this? Uh, uh... And decides to expose the man that he thinks is the culprit with his friend Alex Cutter. Ah, see, no. I saw a man disposing a body, and I chose to expose myself. (laughs) (laughs) You chose to expose yourself. Why are you always doing that? (laughs) We leave you now with the trailer for episode 199, Cutter's Way. Give this clown enough to cover any damage. You'll get it back in a couple hours. Come on. Introducing Alex Cutter. You're kind of sexy. Do you have an appointment? Hey, Alex. How do I look? Hey, you look like a fat man on a horse, Georgie. Huh? Black's rich. Cutter's wife, Mo. The, um... Richard Bone fan club is now complete. This, for instance, is a tomato. Food, huh? Yeah, I remember food. People used to have to eat it during the prohibition, didn't they? Occasionally for days on end. Cutter's best friend. My charger's got a bad battery, but will I do? <laughs> oh, no, you're too old. <laughs> Richard Bone. Buy some vitamin E. Well, it's been better for me, too. He's drunk. I have to give that another try. Makes you say that. Their life together wasn't exactly ordinary, but they never bargained for Cutter's fantasy. Is there Richard Bone here? Crushed trachea, fractured skull, 17 years old. That's him. This young friend of yours is pursuing some fantasy of his own and and includes me. Whatever we do falls under the heading of justice. Dishonorable and gutless. Tony, what are you going to do? It's not a question of what I'm going to do. It's a question of what you're going to do with the time you've got left. I'd say that you're the one that ought to be very, very careful, not us. You're the witness, remember? I've got one big problem. What's that? Your imagination. I haven't even begun to let my imagination loose on this one. John Hurd, Jeff Bridges, and Lisa Eichhorn in Cutter's Way, a film by Yvonne Passer from UA Classics.